You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. As I started to research today's story, I began to reflect on my life before I owned a home. You know, for more than 20 years, I'd lived in various apartments, and one of my rules for choosing an apartment was that it had to be on the top floor. Now, my rationale for this was, you know, noise. You know, the constant thumping of people walking around above my head. Well, it just made it very difficult for me to get any sleep. Of course, living above others doesn't always work out. Once I lived above a heavy smoker, and the smell would just seep through the floor and stink up my apartment. But perhaps the oddest problem, however, occurred in the mid-1990s with a couple that lived directly under me. Let's just say that the female half of the relationship was a screamer, and leave it at that. Well, after about two months of listening to them, the problem was resolved when the two were evicted for non-payment of their rent. Well, today's story is also about apartment living, but it didn't involve me in the slightest. First, let me give you a little background. Way back in 1869, William A. Engelman, now he had earned his wealth by selling horses to the Union Army during the Civil War, he purchased several hundred acres of beachfront property in Gravesend, Brooklyn. He named it Brighton Beach, supposedly after the resort town in England, and in 1871, he built the Ocean Hotel, and then in 1878, completed the Brighton Beach Bathing Pavilion and Ocean Pier. This attracted thousands of affluent people seeking to escape the crowded city. And you may not know this at the time, but Brooklyn was its own city in the 1800s. Now, one could get to Brighton Beach by several rail lines or via the newly completed Ocean Parkway. And for those of you who have ever been in Ocean Parkway, you may be surprised to find out there were absolutely no homes along it at the time, and this allowed families to take a leisurely scenic path to the oceanfront. Now, one of the guests who greatly enjoyed his stay at the Ocean Hotel was a robber baron. His name was Austin Corbin, and he had consolidated all the rail lines into the area into the Long Island Railroad. Well, he was incredibly wealthy and decided to purchase his own chunk of beachfront and build his own Graham Resort. In fact, it was the grandest of all of them. He named it the Manhattan Beach Hotel, and being an anti-Semite, he forbid Jews from staying there. Now, not to be outdone, William Engelman built the even larger Brighton Beach Hotel in 1878. He soon added the Brighton Beach Racetrack, which was followed by the Brighton Theater and the Brighton Music Hall. Unfortunately, the hotel was built too close to the ocean, and the constant battering of the waves threatened to undermine the very foundation of the hotel. In what would prove to be one of the major engineering feats of its day, 
the entire hotel, which was estimated to weigh in excess of 8 million pounds, it was placed on 112 rail carts and pulled along 24 sets of railroad tracks by two sets of three locomotives and then moved 600 feet or about 186 meters inland. Now, if you're not familiar with Brooklyn, let me see if I can describe this for you. First, you should realize that Brooklyn is really the western portion of Long Island. Now, at the bottom or southern end of Brooklyn, there are three beaches. Starting on the west, there's Coney Island, which is the most famous of the three. Then, as you move east, there's Brighton Beach. Then there's a little bit of a gap, and you find Manhattan Beach. But really, they're all along the same shoreline. The incredible success of these hotels was not to last. And while there's no single factor that killed off their popularity, you could say it was partly due to the carnival-like atmosphere of nearby Coney Island. You know, it spilled over into Brighton Beach, the construction of lower-priced hotels, a 1908 law that forbid betting at the racetracks, of course, there's the Great Depression, the suburbanization of Brooklyn, and so on. Sadly, those Grand Victorian hotels are long gone, and the only remaining evidence of this one spectacular vacation area is the boardwalk itself. In 1955, the late Brooklyn developer Alexander Muss took a long-term lease on 21 acres of property that faced the boardwalk at Brighton Beach. His grand plan was to construct high-rise housing on much of this land, but a 1961 rezoning law limited them to building just two tall buildings. And in fact, if you go there today, you'll see that the two buildings we're about to talk about are the tallest in the area. Called the Seacoast Towers, the first 16-story building was completed in 1961, and that was followed by a second 20-story tower in 1962. The complex, which sat directly on the location of the former Brighton Beach Hotel, contained a total of 590 apartments. An ad in the January 3rd, 1961 publication of the New York Times describes Seacoast Towers as follows. Quote, Correction. It is not true that our four-room, one-bedroom apartments rented $250. This misconception is understandable considering the outstanding features of our 16-story luxury apartments. The only apartments in Brooklyn directly on the ocean just 37 steps from the boardwalk, beach, and ocean. Magnificent lobby designed by Maurice Lapidus. Striking canopy entrance. Doorman service. Men's and women's private beach locker rooms. Private 14-foot terraces for every apartment and more. The truth is that our four-room apartments rent for only $160. Why not come up today and see for yourself? Now the ad points out some more features. Mail chute, oak parquet floors, pre-war room sizes, 12 cubic foot GE refrigerator freezer, gallery foyer, separate dining room, oversized kitchen with brunch tables, Seacoast Towers, Brighton 14th Street at Boardwalk, Brooklyn. I have to admit, that sounds spectacular, doesn't it? A one-bedroom spacious apartment that overlooks the ocean for just $160 per month. 
If you adjust that for inflation, that'd be about $1,350 per month today. But perhaps the details that are most important to the story that I'm about to tell you appeared on May 10th, 1959 on the front page of the real estate section of the New York Times. It reads, quote, Airspace within the walls has been designed to make the building virtually soundproof. Vermiculite ceilings also help to reduce sound transmission between floors. Soundproof is not exactly the first word that one thinks of when you start to hear the details of an argument that occurred between two of the residents of Seacoast Towers. It's the story of two guys named Sam. The first is 55-year-old Sam Shire, who lived with his wife and daughter in apartment 16V at 35 Seacoast Terrace. That's the taller of the two apartment buildings. Shire was the maitre d' at the Hotel Diplomat in Manhattan and typically arrived home around 2 a.m. each morning. Exhausted, he would typically fall into a deep sleep and snore loudly. So to keep confusion between the two Sams to a minimum, I'll refer to Shire as Snoring Sam for the remainder of the story. Next up we have Sam number two. That's 46-year-old Samuel Gutworth, who was a publicist and had to wake up early each morning to make his business rounds. When the Gutworths rented their apartment in a supposedly soundproof building, they got the surprise of their lifetime when they discovered that a thin wall separated their apartment from the next. He claimed to be able to hear mild whispers from the adjoining apartments. Worse yet, the Gutworth's bed was positioned on the other side of the wall from where snoring Sam's bed was located. And just like clockwork, every morning around 2.30 a.m., the Gutworths were awoken by the loud sounds being generated from snoring Sam's slumber. Sam Gutworth had no choice but to bang against the wall to wake snoring Sam up. So I'll refer to Sam number two as Banging Sam. This snoring and banging back and forth ritual continued until January 20th of 1964. That's when Snoring Sam dragged Banging Sam into Brooklyn Criminal Court, charging him with making unnecessary noise. He claimed that Banging Sam had been knocking on his bedroom wall five or six times each night for the previous six months. As a result, Banging Sam was forced to hire a lawyer to represent him, a man named Joseph Mandel. He told Judge Matthew Fagan, quote, Mr. Shire is a snorer of gigantic proportions and gives off an animalistic roar with the quality of a lion's roar that vibrates the rooms. The very anticipation of their beginning at about 2.30 a.m. every day has shaken my client and his wife, deprived them of sleep, injured their health, and, in fact, constitute an assault upon their persons. The judge questioned Snoring Sam as to whether he really did snore, to which he replied, I don't know, I'm asleep. He added, How would you like it if every time you settled down for a good snooze, some idiot started pounding? In his defense, Banging Sam told the judge that he and his wife Ida, quote, 
simply can't put up with it. I banged on the wall to try and shut him up. Snoring Sam finally conceded that he was, in fact, a snorer and had been doing so for many years. However, he felt that snoring was a natural act and one that simply cannot be avoided or controlled, while banging Sam's actions were a deliberate and calculated attempt to unnerve Mr. and Mrs. Snoring Sam. He told the court, quote, He is undermining my health and the health of my family. He added, It is his intention to force us out of our apartment. It's not that Banging Sam didn't try to talk the problem over with Snoring Sam. He suggested that he consult a doctor about his problem, you know, possibly wear a snore warning device, whatever that is, switch bedrooms with his daughter, you know, or move his bed to the opposite side of the room. Well, Snoring Sam refused to do any of these things. What a mess. Now, if you would judge Fagan, how would you rule in this unusual case? Well, he didn't. He did the next best thing. He pushed the decision off into the future and told the two to return back to court on February 13th. He also suggested that Banging Sam file a cross-complaint, which he did do, and when they returned to court, he asked them to bring their wives. The judge wanted to hear their sides of the story, and he also asked that the two consult their landlord, that's Seacoast Homes Incorporated, to see if they could do something to help solve this problem. It wasn't long before this absurd story was picked up by the wire services and told in newspapers all across the country. The very next day after the court hearing, the New York Daily News ran a lengthy story featuring comments from both sides of the snoring war. Banging Sam told reporter Michael Mock, quote, Let me put it to you this way. He can't help his snoring, but at least he could move his bed. It's cheek by jowl with mine, and when I said to him maybe he might move it, he said the best thing I could do would be to get earplugs. He added, My problem is that my wife simply can't put up with it. Now what are we to do? I banged on the wall to try and shut him up, but that only woke him from a deep sleep. In response, Snoring Sam stated, I mean, how on earth would you like it if every time you settled down for a snooze, some idiot started pounding rump-titty-rump-titty-rump-rump-rump or shaving a haircut two bits? A photograph that accompanied the article showed Banging Sam and his wife Ida in bed with a giant reel-to-reel tape recorder and a sound-level meter sitting on the nightstand. They claimed to have hired a man to operate this equipment and measure how loud the snoring really was, but while waiting for snoring Sam to arrive home, the operator fell asleep and awoke Banging Sam with his own loud snores. The Daily News reporter borrowed the equipment to try it out at various locales around the city. He determined that Snoring Sam was producing sounds that were equivalent to those produced by a hungry, growling Labrador retriever and a midget that was tap dancing. He also determined that Snoring Sam was only slightly quieter than a news copy boy cracking Brazil nuts open. Why anyone would think of these, I don't know, but I am not making this up. 
When the court date of February 13, 1964 finally arrived, Judge Fagan was not present. My guess is he must have decided to run as far away from this case as possible, and that was to avoid having to make a decision. Instead, Judge Arthur Dunoff presided over the proceedings. Snoring Sam was there with his newly hired lawyer, that's Irving J. Linder, but banging Sam was a no-show. Snoring Sam told the court that he wished to withdraw his complaint against banging Sam, and the judge agreed. The whole thing was thrown out. So why this sudden change of heart? Upon exiting the courtroom, Snoring Sam Shire told newsmen that everything was resolved because someone had built a thick sound barrier between the two apartments. The odd thing was that no one would take credit for building this new wall. Snoring Sam denied having anything to do with it, and banging Sam Gutworth said he certainly didn't do it. And both the management at Seacoast Homes and the builders, that's Alexander Musson's sons, they also denied having built it. Today, Seacoast Towers is a luxury co-op building. I did a quick check on Zillow, and the current selling prices range between $381,200 for a one-bedroom, one-bath to a high of $729,000 for a two-bedroom, two-bath unit. Yet, the only review on Yelp awarded 35 Seacoast Terrace a one-star rating and states, quote, very thin walls, stupid neighbor watching TV all day, cigarette smell in the corridor, old building. Well, I guess that means that they never did soundproof the remaining walls in the building, and that's the reason why when my wife and I bought our house, I insisted that there be some space between us and our neighbors. On that note, I hope that everyone gets some nice, quiet slumber time tonight. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. If you suffer from painful corns that make it agony for you to wear shoes, torture for you to walk, listen, there's an amazing liquid that's guaranteed to remove your corns or double your money back. It's Freezone Liquid Corn Remover, and it goes to work to cool and soothe the burning pain and starts to remove the corn the instant it's applied. Then, when continued use is directed, this amazing liquid actually removes the corn. There's no must, no fuss. No need to wear bulky, uncomfortable-feeling pads. Get F-R-E-E-Z-O-N-E, Freezone Liquid Corn Remover, today, with this understanding. If Freezone doesn't remove your corn and give you blessed relief from pain while it's doing it, we will give you double your money back. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. That commercial for Free Zone Liquid Corn Remover is from the June 20th, 1949 radio broadcast of Front Page Farrell. This particular episode was titled A Case of a Fatal Smile. Each episode of the show ran for 15 minutes and focused on a husband and wife detective team who solved crimes. Big shock there. Initially, the show was more like a soap opera and focused on domestic issues, but as competition from TV heated up, the mysteries became more and more hard-hitting over time. 
Front page file ran on the mutual network from June 23, 1941 through March 13, 1942. It was then picked up by NBC and ran on that network from September 14, 1942 through March 26, 1954. The show was mostly sponsored by American Home Products, which manufactured such famous brands as Anison, Dristan, Heat Brand Liniment, Preparation H, Easy Off Oven Cleaner, Black Flag Insecticides, and of course the commercial you just heard here for Free Zone Liquid Corn Remover. The product is still available and works just like you know most of the over-the-counter corn and callus removers. Its active ingredient is salicylic acid, which is also used in a number of acne medicines. Basically, it increases the amount of moisture in your skin and also dissolves some of the intercellular glue that holds the skin cells together. In other words, it makes the skin softer and easier to shed. So here's a question for you. The first designated bike lane was opened in the United States back in 1894. Can you name the road that this was built on? Well, here's a big hint. I briefly mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Now, if you didn't catch it, don't worry about it. I will let you know the answer at the end of the show. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that are just, I don't know, highly unusual. On June 11th of 1941, it was reported that a 40 foot by 50 foot, that's about 12.2 by 15 and a quarter meter, five-story brick building that was owned by the Empire Storage and Ice Company in Kansas City collapsed unexpectedly. Well, it turns out that the building was filled with 30,000 bushels of popping corn that just seemed to spontaneously combust, and you know what happened next. 
it just began to expand and expand and expand. So powerful was the force that two railroad boxcars were overturned and nearly covered in bricks and popcorn. In our next story, it was reported on August 11th of 1959 that a 67-year-old widow named Florence Hill of Denver, Colorado, was awoken by the sound of her dog Boots growling. Here's how she described what had happened. Quote, I woke up from a nap the other night and there he was, this little mouse on the sewing machine right beside my bed. I opened my mouth to yell and he jumped right in. I clinched my teeth right away and caught him by the tail. He was crawling and scratching to get away and he was going right down my throat. I just couldn't keep hold of him. I could feel him crawling all the way down. Yeah, you heard that correctly. She swallowed the little mouse. She continued, It was the most horrible night I've ever spent. I went to Denver General Hospital yesterday. They x-rayed me and didn't find a thing wrong. They kept me there for six hours, then told me to eat and drink plenty and sent me home. I feel pretty good now. And our last story for today is dated January 12th of 1961 and took place in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. It was reported that two 15-year-old girls named Christanne Duran, yes, that's her name, of 3842 Sarah Street, and Peggy Weissman, who lived at 941 Franklin Street, well, they had squeezed themselves into a pay telephone booth, which was located at the corner of Hartman Street and O'Neill Boulevard, and their intention was to make a call, but after they completed it, they couldn't get the door open to get back out. So they frantically hammered on the glass for assistance, but those who saw them just simply smiled or they waved and walked on by. Ultimately, one of the girls was able to get her hand into her purse and she pulled out a dime to call the police. A patrolman arrived and he had to remove the door from the phone booth to get them out, which got me thinking. Couldn't they have simply dialed O for operator and gotten help that way? Hmm... So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you where the first designated bike lane was opened. Well, the answer was on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn on June 15th of 1894. Ocean Parkway was designed in 1876 by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. Those are the same two guys responsible for Central Park. After the land was purchased for the project, work began in 1874 and the road was completed in 1880. The nearly 5-mile or 8-kilometer road was just one of four parkways planned to radiate outward from the then newly constructed Prospect Park, which was also designed by them. Ocean Parkway was divided based on its function. There was a wide central lane that was designated for leisurely driving during the pre-automobile age, that means horse and buggy, although it quickly became popular for horse racing. There were two tree-lined walking paths flanking each side of the road, and out on the periphery there were service roads that were constructed to handle the commercial traffic. In 1892, riders began to petition for a separate bike path. As a result, in 1894, one of the walking paths was divided up, 
and a crushed limestone surface was installed. An estimated 10,000 cyclists showed up on opening day of what was then called the Coney Island Cycle Path. Demand for the bike path was so high that it was soon widened from its original width of 14 feet to 17 feet. That would be from 4.3 meters to 5.2 meters. Two years later, a return path was built on the opposite side of the boulevard. To this day, a designated bike path still exists on the Ocean Parkway. It's confined to one side of the central roadway, and it's much narrower than it once was, but it's still wide enough for two bicycles to comfortably pass by each other. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. As I've mentioned before, I'm in the process of writing a new book, and I've taken a brief break from my writing to record this episode that you're listening to. I have to admit that it's slow going, but I do have six totally new stories fully written. There really is a lot to go, but I do have the entire summer to finish the bulk of it. If you'd like to receive an occasional update as to when the book will be finally available, you can just go to my website at uselessinformation.org and click on the image of the book on the left. That will take you to a Google form where you can enter your contact information. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed, that's at UselessInfoCast, and that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also be sure to like the show on Facebook, you can just do a quick search for Useless Information Podcast there. Of course, you can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or really wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Be sure to go to recordedhistory.net to learn all about the quality history podcast that the network has to offer. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in next time. Bye.